1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Katherine Ehrlich titled Irma's Passport One Woman, Two World Wars, and a Legacy of Courage, published by She Writes Press. Katherine Ehrlich, welcome to the show. Thank you, very pleased to be here. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little about yourself?
1: Sure, Uh, I'm an author now by way of lots of jobs, many of which had to do with language and narratives um, such as marketing, speech writing, uh, things like that. Um, I studied Asian languages at University of Michigan. I studied international relations at Johns Hopkins uh, SAIS. But because I started learning languages early, I was able to spend my 17th birthday in Japan as an exchange student, uh, live and work in Taiwan uh, and Hong Kong and China. And this book reflects how Irma was my role model for learning languages to have a fascinating life. And it also is uh, reflective of the Jewish side of my family, um, because uh, um, that's not both sides of my family, but it goes back to uh, roots in Central Europe. So can you tell us who Irma is and how this book came about? My grandmother was born in 1890, and I knew her well because she lived until 1986, nearly a century. She started life in Bohemia, uh, part of Austria-Hungary, and uh, lived after that in Prague, uh, Vienna, London, and New York. Uh, It's a fascinating life, but one absolutely disrupted by history. In which she played a role. She knew eight languages. She went to university when women didn't. Uh, she was a mountain climber. And she what to me was wonderful and exotic. And she had a 40-year career that began at the age of 49. So um, uh, she impressed me. And she um When I came to think about writing the book, it had to do with memoirs. She started writing late in life of her, and she could remember uh, an enormous amount about her childhood. And she, but she didn't write about all phases of her life. And uh, so very intense uh, pieces of the story, sometimes typed when she couldn't see really anymore. And so garbled and there were missing pages. And so I wanted to put that together, but I also found that until I sought out the context for her, uh, for what she wrote, I couldn't expect the next generation to be able to understand. And guess what? There's a lot I didn't understand either uh, in that. And so I had these amazing uh, partial memoirs that I thought were a family treasure but her life was lived in the crosshairs of lots of historical conflict. And as a result of that, um, also she knew quite a lot of famous people, famous men, and there's a lot of history written by and about those people. So that was a very rich level of resource for me to sometimes see what she had written Understand it at one level, find it mentioned in history, and come to a new level of understanding of the significance of even bringing that up. So um, uh, that was that was a lot about my process. So it's a dual memoir in that I remember her and I write about it. Two women um, writing about uh, across a hundred years, but uh, and more, but. Um, I was also quite curious about were my grandparents influence in history and I had some real puzzles to solve that she, what she said didn't make sense to me until I worked it.
0: Yeah and you and you call it a co-generational memoir in the in the beginning of the book which is a really great turn of a phrase and really made it clear for me how you were using the family materials that you had but also were making a story, uh, a bigger story uh, together with her. Um, so what does the title Irma's Passport mean?
1: That has a dual meaning too, <laughs> a dual quality. Um, it, it does refer to critical scenes of getting out of Vienna in 1938 when every Jewish person was trying to get a passport out. And her story is very particular about how that happened for her. But also it refers to the fact that in times of crisis, where, of which there were many, she drew on languages and they pulled her through time and time again. Um, A passport can be nullified. It can be confiscated. Visas can be stolen. But when she's trying to get out of Vienna, she speaks in German in such and such a way to Nazis who can cooperate or not. When she's stuck on the wrong side of a border in France and could have been arrested as an enemy alien and has no passport, she speaks to the French boat captain in French. And when she gets to London and has no job and no prospects, her the fact that she'd learned English language at uh, Charles University in Prague very well led to her um, uh, uh, jobs and future as a spokesperson for people who could not speak for themselves. So in that sense, languages were her passport. Oh, that's
0: beautiful. Yeah. And I'm interested in women's history. And when I teach women's history, I use a methodology popularized by a historian named Gerda Lerner. She was also an Austrian woman who fled the Nazis like Irma. And she recommends that historians analyze women's own words in order to recover their stories. And I really think this memoir provides just an accessible resource for students. So this book would be terrific in a variety of different college courses. What advice would you have for professors who want to include her in their curriculum?
1: You know, I find that fascinating. Um, I didn't know about Gerda Lerner, but as I worked with this, you know, there were opportunities I could have paraphrased her. And I just did that as little as possible to keep my narrative flowing because uh, I kept on learning from her words uh, as I wrote. And, um, Um, It it led to real insights and what was um, transformative to me by watching her words was to see things about women's history, how she expressed it, how she experienced it, um, how important her mother was in uh, making her a, a strong hearted woman. And in Vienna, she was inspired by other women particularly Erna Patak and uh, in London when she's absolutely at the bottom of, of, of you know her life as a, a refugee um, other women notice her talent and I kept on finding that women who may not even have a Wikipedia entry at this time, We're stepping up and doing amazing things. And most notably here, um, Zionist women, Women in International Zionist Organization. And um, they're not totally unknown, but it's fascinating. And they were doing something about Hitler. So I find her this amazing, reliable voice on what was going on there. Yeah, she is. And she would be great to include in a college course.
0: And uh, I think that professors would really enjoy including this in curriculum. So I hope that people do consider including the book in their future plans for their classes. Can you tell us a bit about Irma's early life during the late 19th
1: century in the Austro-Hungarian empire? Um, She wrote um, uh, about this very quaint um, Bohemia that she lived in, in village life, and how the world, as the world changed, her life was changing, but it was very colorful. Um, and also it, 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 they were Jewish, but they were mostly among Catholics. And she only gradually becomes aware of that there are differences. She grows up with the Christmas tree lighting uh, uh, because Christmas trees are delightful and they're a German tradition. And uh, she, um, She moves on to larger towns as people were beginning to move. Um, And um, you sense, in her words, that there's this tension going on a little bit among the German, those who identify German and those who identify Czech and that, you know, who's Jewish, who's Catholic, the the smallest minority that she encounters is Protestant. And, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a time of, of change and you can sense that as she's growing up. Um, but um, I'll say in her view, uh, up through the time that um, she actually comes to university, life is getting better every day. You know, in her grandparents' time, the uh, emperor of Austria-Hungary declared Jews equal. In her grandfather's lifetime, it became true. Jews could become military officers. Jews could move freely about the empire. Jews could own land. And life was getting better for them. And then in her life, she almost dies, but a brand new vaccine becomes available. And her parents are savvy enough to send somebody by express train to Prague, get it back, and it saves her life. And, you know, vaccines are becoming available. Transportation's becoming possible. People can move about, middle class is growing, and lo and behold, women are getting allowed to get educated. So um, now this is uh, getting better every day right through 1914. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and it's
0: funny, whenever you study world history or European history and they try to explain how optimistic Europeans were because progress just kept going on. Everything kept getting, there was life was getting better. we're, We're getting wealthier. We're getting more advanced. Uh, the Europeans had conquered the colonial empire. Like, Hey, we're great. You know, like this was a real high point in the confidence of European society in general. And she really, in her own life, like really reflects that personally. So it's a very interesting uh, vignette of European life with her in it, in the, in the early part of the book. And in her memoirs she wrote that when she learned about the French Revolution when she went to school she thought that it was horrible looking back at it and she wrote I'm going to quote her quote I was thankful for living in an enlightened era a century later when such terrible things were impossible I took comfort in the thought that in my own lifetime the world was getting better every day that becomes such an ironic statement right as we move yeah. into her into her uh, adulthood.
1: Well, in our own time, people were writing that that, that we're at the end of history. So uh, I think there's a parallel between that sense of things are looking up and then, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that leads to my next question. So Irma was
0: a clearly intelligent and charismatic woman. So I was really surprised at how much schooling she had so could you uh, talk a little bit about how she came to attend school and how her experience as a public speaker develops and shapes her future?
1: Sure. Um, first, her mother had to finish her education at the age of 11 or 12 because there was no school in that town. And so it's her mother who who regretted lacking the education that makes darn well that went. Irma get to that age, the family actually moves so that Irma can keep on going to school to a larger town where there's a middle school. But things keep on happening just in time because she's, she's about through middle school. And I found this um, in a English language women's magazine about women's progress that a group of bourgeois ladies in this town said, well, maybe we should have a lyceum or a high school because you can't go to, you know, women are begin, may be able to get into the university in the future and you can't get in without a high school education, what we call high school. And they started up a little school. And Irma's in it like lightning with her mother's backing. And I must say her parents' backing. She was in a family of all girls. And it was much more common that any boys would have been educated. But she got the education. uh, And so she gets through high school and she gets all the way to uh, Charles University. And the rarity of this, I was fascinated by because very few people went to university, first of all. And then very many fewer women. So if you were to take the college age youth in the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time, the chances of her going to university were 2,500 to one. And it puts her in a vanguard and a very conscious vanguard, I think, because they're so lucky and they're representing their families and probably representing women to some extent by holding their own. And they're exposed to this ferment at the university. So I think that it placed in her mind a, a sense that she was somebody who could and must meet high standards and hold her own. Yeah. How about that the story you tell
0: about her uh first experience getting up in front of everyone and just being a natural at public speaking.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, she, she, there was no TV. There was hardly a concert in town. And so, you know, she's made to entertain by reciting from a this young age in, in, in um, her middle years, there's a clubhouse and she, she, Plays Titania uh, in Shakespeare's Mid-Sight, Summer's Night's Dream*, and she thrives on this. She, I'm sure, it it really helped build her poise, and also her sense that she could entertain people and that she could stand up to this. So, the sort of the when she is thrown on, t- uh, on stage in um, in English at a this uh, terrible time in her life. She's backed up by this uh, um, past experience of being the person who can recite poems, and 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 uh, you know. So there's a little bit of a diva quality that she's that she's picked up. Uh, oh yeah, and she's yeah. It's good that
0: she has it. And uh, you know, you foreshadow her her charisma as a young woman uh, really perfectly, uh, and how it helps her later in her life in a, in a very important way. So I I think it's fantastic that she has that diva quality. (laughs) So you also provide us with a beautiful description of the cosmopolitan culture of the Austro-Hungarian empire, the great composers, the writers, the artists, the thinkers that are all in her orbit uh, and cross paths with her. So
1: can you share some of them with us? Yeah, um, I think she viewed Prague as sort of the New York and Vienna as the Washington, D.C. And and that that it was this, she was in this cultural, um, uh, amazing place. I mean, when she's, and before she even gets to university, um, you know, it's like for us, when a new Beatles song came out, it was when for her, when there was a new Strauss waltz out there was all the rage and it was very exciting. So they were very connected with the musical uh, changes, but because she's in this university environment, she's rubbing shoulders with Einstein, who's who's teaching um, at at Charles University. Uh, uh, Franz Kafka, uh, he'd graduated, but he, like many people, he still attended classes And he was in her English class. And he's also a distant cousin. So, um, uh, and I always think of Stefan Zweig because he describes the environment, that environment very well. So this rarity of a university educated person puts her in a kind of intelligentsia. And I think that um, at the time, I don't think it was, she was at university for career. I think she was there for, cultural refinement, and love of learning. And ultimately, it's going to mix her with Zionists, and she's going to um, get to know people, including the future president of Israel at such time as it's going to be founded, Heim Weizmann. So there qu- there's quite a mix. They're not all Jewish, the, um, uh, different phases of life. Uh, earlier in their life, there's much more of a mix. Uh, but uh, yeah, quite a few... Names. Yeah. And her, but her mother insists she takes a teaching certificate, right? She does for just in case as <laughs> well. How many of <laughs> us have heard that? <laughs> that's, that's not, that never has gone out of style, right? Right. And that was about the only career women had teaching. There was maybe a little something else and they were all going to stop teaching when they, should they conceive a child. So, Yeah.
0: just in case, in case you need to put bread on your own table, right? You know, you had that, but her, yes, her mother is, uh, is really quite a woman uh, as well. So it's really nice to, uh, to recognize her, how smart she was because she really did her quite a good turn by having her get that teaching job certification at, uh, at college. And, so while she's in college, she gets, she gets married, right? So she gets mm-hmm. married to Erwin Colmar on the eve of World War I, or as Europeans call it, the Great War. Mm-hmm. How did the timing of the outbreak of the war and her marriage change her life?
1: It would have been really useful if that war hadn't broken out for a couple of months. Um, they, she is married to Erwin and they, he has a fellowship at Oxford. So she's, you know, married a few months. They're kind of taking it easy for a few months and then they're going to go there. She's on a track. She would probably, you know, be having children and meeting, uh, you know, living a, a, a sort of a life of letters. But... In August, the guns of August, World War I begins. Irwin, as a university man, is in the reserves because most of them were. And so it's, it's uh, part patriotism and part do your duty, because you're viewed as officer material if you have an education. So he's in the reserves, and the army be- the war begins suddenly, and all the reserves are going to going to get called up. And so there's a very touching picture of um, August in his uniform, them photographed together. He's going to go off to this, what's expected to be a skirmish, and everybody's going to be home by Christmas. But she's married him in December. And in November 1918, he's never heard of again. He's killed. She can't believe it. So not only has she not taken off for England because he's he's going to be called up, but she's lost. She's a widow at the uh, at the age of 24, and everything looks lost.
0: Yeah, it's such a it's such a tragedy, and in the and in the, in the timing of it uh, made all the difference um, in the way that they married, and then he goes to war and dies so early in the war. Um, so after World War I, she wrote, quote, I had to make a new start, end quote. And her her resilience, her courage is really on display at this point in her life, you know, but she does find love again. Uh, so how did she come to marry Jakob Ehrlich? And can you tell me a little about who he was?
1: So... <laughs> I find it remarkable that she moves to Vienna as a widowed single woman. She doesn't go back to where her parents and family are. She makes a leap and she doesn't know people. She has a job though, teaching at one of the block schools. And um, she, she, she meets Erna Patek, who's this amazing um, Zionist woman who's going to run for office in 1919. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, she, she finds herself in a circle that is uh, kind of heavily Zionist. Now here she is from an utterly assimilated kind of a background where Jewishness is not emphasized, it's there, it's part of things. And here are these overtly political Zionist Jews. And she is finds them very interesting um and she's been not been political before but there at Erna Pataks Jakob Ehrlich shows up and in fact they crossed paths when she was a teenager and she he was just this ha- handsome avuncular figure um but at this point he's running for office too and so there's a lot of buzz and it catches that catches her attention. And uh, he, she apparently had already caught his attention a little bit when she was um, a teenager. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's how she meets them. And uh, it, it, you know Jakob's gonna go on to a quite prominent political role in Vienna. But in the aftermath of the war, they meet, they fall in love and they get married. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so she has several happy years with him in the interwar years, um, but we know that in the 1930s, again, political circumstances um, are going to come to bear on her life. And when the Nazis came to power in the 1930s and annexed Austria, what happened to Irma and her family?
1: Jakob... Is one of what was called about 150 prominent. And when Hitler's um, people come in, they have a list of the people they're going to round up, and it's uh, certainly going to include any Jewish leader, um, and it includes other, you know, potential political opponents as well. And the first thing they're going to do is probably go after them. Irma takes her valuables and she puts them downstairs with the non-Jewish person who's going to help them a lot in life and help other Jewish families too. So I wanna give credit there to the Czech Catholic uh, Rosa Mazura. And and she writes about what happens here in a very you were there uh, fashion with a lot of detail Um, she needs to she and Jacob say we've got to get Paul their son my father we've got to get him out of here how are we going to do that they burn his papers lest they be incriminating and then he's picked up and he's thrown into prison and shortly after that he's uh, taken to Dachau Um, then a not a death camp mind you a concentration camp as a political prisoner So this is agonizing for for weeks and all hell's breaking loose all around them, um, all kinds of harassment and trouble. Um, And Irma starts connecting in with the Women's Information Network to try to find out, to try to do something about it. Um, So uh, unfortunately, Yaakov is going to die and she's going to be a widow and it's going to be up to her to figure out what to do next. And so how did Irma and Paul
0: escape after Jacob's death and how did Adolf Eichmann come to play a role in her life?
1: And here you're at one of my puzzles because, you know, putting this together, I needed so much context and what I really needed to take in was that there were two years where the policy was forced emigration. It was not about box cars and deportation. It was horrible, but every Jewish family was trying to emigrate. Um, and um, Eichmann, in fact, um, has direct conversations with Jakob before Jakob dies but the first time Irma sees him is when Jakob has a funeral and this is this funeral is a cover up to the fact that he it's been a prison murder and it's but it's also a message to the Jews of Austria this can happen to anyone and Eichmann shows up at Jakob's funeral, where the Zionist elite is there quietly. They're they're not allowed to publicize it. And he's saying, I'm watching. I'm watching you all. Mm. And the message comes across. Um, So this is the first time Irma sees him. But somehow Eichmann facilitates a passport for Irma out of Austria when um, she's just trying to get Paul out, and um, unlocking this has to do with understanding that Eichmann was funding the emigration not from just from the Nazi coffers; he was basically extorting money from wherever he could. And Jews in Austria, in uh, England and America were sending money to via Nazi hands to fund poor Jews exiting who could not afford to do it. And Irma's passport has to do with Eichmann getting an agreement, a deal, to get money from overseas. So it's pretty brutal. And I don't think Irma quite understood it.
0: Right. As it was happening, she was, it was so scary. I mean, how she could possibly be processing this in a larger context, it's probably impossible, right? It's just the, it's only after the fact, right? That all you're just grateful you get out. You don't ask the question of of how this happened, right? Just so it was uh, such a, a really heart pounding part of the book to read. And um, but there's also a really great story about her diamond earrings. And I was wondering, can you tell us a little
1: bit about her diamond earrings? Um, yeah, I mean, the, her her family was you know, sort of moving into the middle class. They had diamonds, and the the, the uh, these diamonds. Her mother had uh, diamond earrings and they were heirloom earrings and, and sort of the jewels represented insurance. You could always sell them if you really needed to. But when Hitler has invaded and these earrings are in Ir- Irma's hands, but when Hitler is invades and there are a few weeks while it's just very, very confusing, an old, old friend shows up at the door and says, it's actually the son of an old friend says, is there anything I can do for you? And the job he's given is to take her jewelry and to uh, get it out of Nazi sight. And he takes it to her parents in, in, who are in, in, um, in Czechoslovakia at this time. So they disappear for a while. And then, you know, she's getting out she and my father, Paul, are getting out on the last plane before Czechoslovakia is invaded. The last plane, in fact, before Kristallnacht. And it, it, the planes are small, they're puddle jumpers. It, 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 it goes Vienna, Prague, it comes down. It's gonna go from there to the Hague and then finally get to London, Croydon Airport. And, but her parents know and they come and meet her. And she's they're not really allowed to get close, but her mother, her persuasive mother, kind of begs. And when they're embracing, she slips this packet of jewelry into Irma's hands. The Nazis would not have let those that luggage go through, I can tell you that. Um, So, that I find them in my father's desk drawer after he dies. And he doesn't have this, he's not there to tell me the story of why he's 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 keeping them aside. But Irma's memoirs come to the fore and they tell me, um, and, and they tell me how those jewels traveled from small town Bohemia to New York and, and beyond. So, um, they came to represent for me the hardiness of 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 the wom- women and the people that Irma came from.
0: And the beauty, right? The sparkling. And, the jewelry, and <laughs> yes. they sparkle just like these women do in the story. And uh, I hope you wear them and enjoy them and think of all these wonderful women in your family. I really do. Um,
1: so Paul and Irma get out and they go to England. And what happens there? she's getting off the plane. She's made it out. She has no plans. She has no money. She has a 15 year old son to take care of. And she's been a housewife helping out that helped out in her husband's office for, for quite a while, while in that Zionist hub, she doesn't know what's going to happen, but the Zionist connections mean that for a few nights, she's housed at the, um, with a uh, with a British MP. And in those first few days, she gets a phone call from Vera Weitzman, the wife of the president of the World Zionist Organization. And these uh, you know, Weitzman's was a bit of a mentor to Jakob in his career. They've known each, she didn't know them in particular, but it's a sort of a tea and sympathy thing. And Vera Weitzman listens to her talking about what's happened in English. It's so rare that someone arrives as a refugee speaking English uh, so well. And she's and she says, "You have a gift to make one feel what you say." And this is going to lead to Irma becoming a spokesperson and a fundraiser um, uh, for the rest of her career internationally, um, on stage influencing people and raising funds in particular for youth Alia.
0: And Paul's not so happy in England, right? (laughs) No, he's not. (laughs) Uh, uh, And that's, that's a shame, you know, (laughs) but so he's unhappy. So uh, I guess there, there's going to be another move, huh?
1: Uh, there's going to, I think a uh, British public school could be counted on to not be kind to a refugee uh, who's probably never been encouraged to play sports in his life. And, and, and he's, he's on his own there. It's a rough training ground, but it's also where he sees the class system at work. And when ta- the time gets ripe, and Irma's poised in her career, she's going to give it all up because she's focused on Paul. And Paul says, I'd rather be, I, I think we'll do better. I'll do, I'll do better in America because I can tell that I'm never going to be allowed to forget where I came from here and it's going to damage me for the rest of my life. And she wouldn't have it. So whatever it cost her, she was picking up stakes and going.
0: Yeah. And Irma has to start again. So how did she make a new life in New York?
1: It's really not easy. She thought she, you know, got a reputation going. I think, I, I mean, I have this experience too. When you come back from living abroad for a long time, and you think you're a shining example of uh, of know how and knowledge, but you're a newcomer to where to where you got to, and she's got to prove herself all over again and pick up pick up, you know, speaking bits here and there. And ultimately it comes through, but she's, um, she's hell bent on one thing. And I, I don't know whether it's a, the, a woman's perspective or the Freudian perspective, but she does not want Paul going growing up with something she called a refugee complex. Somebody weighted by the past. Uh, and she wants him to be able to integrate as she felt integrated in her youth and have sky the sky the limit and the fact that he's lost her his father she's going to make up for that so um she she builds up her career she gets him in school and uh she makes it work yeah so what happened to the other members of the
0: family that they left behind in europe
1: it's not a happy story. Um, as soon as she gets to England, she does manage to, to um, find a bit of sway. It's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the number of people who are begging her to find a way to get out, but she does get her sister's children out. And a few friends, visas, but most of the family stays too long, doesn't move fast enough. And um, you hate to see it, but their lives end end 1942, 1944, uh, sadly. Yes, it was
0: very sad. What was the quote you talk about, German trees, or you can't replant German trees or something? Yeah, when she's she's making efforts to try to help her parents and her siblings, right? that what her
1: her, her her parents wanted her to prioritize herself and Paul. And I think they were afraid of being a burden. and they 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 used the German um, uh, saying, one does not transplant old trees oh, trees. Right. Yeah. Oh. And uh, it, it was too much of a delay. And yeah.
0: Oh, that just, that was just heart wrenching. When I read that, um, yeah. that, you know, yeah. that they were accepting their fate in, in essence there.
1: Yes. And, uh,
0: and then unbelievably as the war is progressing and Paul's getting to be of draftable age in the United States, he is drafted in 1944 and goes to Europe to serve in the American army. Can you imagine how Irma must have felt after losing two husbands in the both world wars and now having to face sending her precious son back to Europe to
1: fight? Uh, yeah, I, I really I think she tried to pull strings to stop it. But the thing is, he wouldn't have it. He was going to enlist. And uh, so my father, Paul Ehrlich, became an American citizen by uh, uh, by uh, induction into the U.S. Army. And uh, it was fortunate that it was towards the end of the war. Uh, and uh, uh, it was uh, he had some interesting times after the war. Uh, he got to see Vienna post-war uh, and, and go back there and see Rosa, his old nursemaid, basically. Um, but uh, she, she agonized and, uh, you know, I'm, fortunately things turned out okay. Yeah. And
0: mountains are a theme throughout the book. And can you explain the significance of
1: mountains in this story? Well, Austrians love mountains and she loved mountains and she climbed them and she found beauty and joy there and the it's it's where the austrian symbol the edelweiss grows but there are also obstacles and she every time after time she encountered very hard to surmount obstacles and time after time, she climbed up again. So, um, absolutely, you know the the beauty
0: of of the mountains and the cultural significance, and of course, you know her her life climbing all these different obstacles in her life. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful significance. And you had mentioned earlier that you did a study abroad in Japan and Irma visits you while you're in Japan. And uh, a Buddhist monk named Hata talks to Irma about suffering and reincarnation and asked her if she could live again, would she do it?
1: And she answers no. Why do you think she said that? I had to, I mean, at the time I didn't understand at all. But I think that what, you know, at that time she was 82 and still climbing hills like nobody's business. But when she looked back, I think she was looking back at what it cost her to succeed. You know, at that point in life, she'd achieved safety. And she'd launched my father and she could see her granddaughter off speaking Japanese in Japan and living, you know, launched on an interesting life. And but I might have thought she transformed her pain into the, uh, you know, uh, full happiness. But this is this is naive she'd achieved a lot. She'd saved her family and she'd saved so many people through youth aliyah and, and other um, causes and um, restored dignity to people through reparations, but it cost her. And I think she could say that she had done her part, but it would be darn risky. To try to see what history was going to bring her next.
0: <laughs> next yeah. yeah. So, what do you think we can learn from Irma's example?
1: You have to notice that history can smack you at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure but can. I want to say this is not a story of survival. This is not a Holocaust story of survival. This is a story of surmounting barriers. And, um, I think we can see uh, a, quite a bit about women's history. And if you, I thought like I, when I took away only the job title and only how much you were paid and looked at what some of those Zionist women were doing in terms of running an international organization, um, building it, being very effective. I, I just thought, well, they were quiet but we stand on their shoulders and you know it's not how she talked about it but it, what's her it's what her words show and that i think above all she says learn to speak for yourself and so for her you're going to meet all kinds of unknowns but you're going to need the words and the language to connect with people so that they can hear you because maybe if people understand they'll help you so learn the lingo yeah communicate you yes. know
0: kind of like almost uh having um just incredible skill with communication you can almost surmount almost any problem or you know solve the problems of the world it's really beautiful. It's just, she is, a, I, I think, an incredible example of per- perseverance and courage, you know, like the title of the book says, A Legacy of Courage. Um, and, and this feels like the perfect time for this book in the United States. You know, there's an alarming increase in anti-Semitic and racist violence in the United States over the last five years. And uh, the movement to ban books really underscores the importance of stories like this. Can this book serve to educate and help promote tolerance? Do you think?
1: I, I hope so. Um, it certainly uh, is a voice for extending compassion. Um, I feel like the great religions all tell us to, but we uh, don't learn the lesson very well. Um, I was very impressed by the early Zionist movement because of the analysis of the situation um, that was written by, in, the, in the book, The Jewish State by Herzl. And, and, and then also in the early Zionist organizational thinking, they, they, they said, here's the problem with the Jews, where we get, we get um, expelled from places, and we find a place that's comfortable for us and we get settled in. And then a whole bunch of other people come because it's safe there. And they, they, that causes disruption from whoever's there. And here comes another whammo. And I feel like it's sort of, yeah, when people move about, we see that time and time again, the intolerance increases. And um, it's a perennial problem that we still need to figure out how to solve. And But in the process, watch out who's persuading you to do what and how. Be careful who you follow. Um, Hitler was saying the problem was the communists and the Jews. Now we have people that are pointing the finger in some other directions and um, you know, it's a, it's a turbulent time. Yes, it really is. And, you know, the photographs in this book
0: really add a lot to the enjoyment of the story. And I love whenever I turn the page to a new chapter, I love to be able to see Jakob and Paul and Irma, of course. And so you were so lucky to have these photographs.
1: Yes, yes, I I, I think so, too. Um, it's uh Irma managed to hold on to a few things and we are, we are indeed lucky. So I'm glad you enjoyed them and, uh, and uh, please do.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. You know, you you yearn to see their face when you hear their voice and you want to see the face too. And it really is really terrific addition to the story. Um, And I want to thank Catherine Ehrlich for joining me on the show today. You know, you said earlier that, um, that Irma could, make people feel things by the way she spoke. And you really made us feel something with your writing. So I want to thank you. I really enjoyed Irma's Passport, One Woman, Two World Wars, and a Legacy of Courage, published by She Writes Press. Until next time, on new books in women's history, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading